Our good and our holy God, we stand in this room today giving you thanks for the lives that you have given us to live. Our prayer and our hope is that we would return these lives to you as an offering, as a gift, that we would see all the matter of our lives as something that's important to you. Lord, we thank you that you call us to give attention to the way we order our days. Lord, we, we're doing that together as a church family. We want to hear from you on how to do it, to be encouraged by you and strengthened by you to do it well. Lord, we're grateful for worship. We're grateful for your word. Lord, now as we open it together, we ask you to give us eyes to see clearly and ears that will hear. Lord, we pray that you give us hearts that are tender, that would receive your word like seed planted in fertile soil. God, we pray that you would give us hands that are strong, that our work in this world would be as your very own. God, we pray that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. And God, we pray that a word of hope and life and testimony would be found on our tongues. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of the Trinity. And we pray together saying, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated and find a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's one provided in the pews. And turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Today we pick up in the sermon series, Doing Maintenance. Years ago, the writer Kurt Vonnegut wrote that another flaw in human character is that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to do maintenance. You got some maintenance out there ahead of you that you're trying to avoid a little bit? Every important aspect of our lives requires us to, to do some maintenance from time to time. And when you go back to the early chapters of Scripture, you have this great story about life with God, life as God would have it. You have a sense of the original blessing and wholeness and life you have God's creational intent for humanity. Uh, and in those early stories, you also see the brokenness that comes through our rebellion. And because of our sinfulness, every category of our experience needs a rainfall of God's grace and a deep commitment on all of our parts to doing maintenance. Our faith requires maintenance. Our, our friendships and family relationships require maintenance. You just let those relationships go. They look like a field that's not given any attention, and it can become weedy. Today, we're going to focus on our relationship with work. Our relationship with work requires maintenance. If you think about your life, how much of your life you spend doing something other than eating or sleeping or worshiping. I mean, if you get paid or you don't get paid, that's not the question here, but you're all doing something that makes a contribution. You're doing something to, to order your section of the world. You're doing something to make a contribution. And the way you relate to that work has a lot to say about how alive you feel in your heart, how joyful and fulfilled you are. And the way we relate to work can get off track very quickly. 
And so it's important for us to have in our mind a handful of biblical principles so that we can go to our work life and do the type of maintenance necessary to experience our working lives as God would have us experience them. So today, if you brought your number two lead pencil or some secondary kind of writing device, I invite you to take them out and write down a few of these things as we walk through the passages of Scripture today. First thing I would have you write down is that work was part of the original shalom, the original peace, the original wholeness. There are some people who say, work is just so awful, it's terrible, it's a result of sin. No, if you go back to the story, work was there at the very beginning. And we, we have in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. In the Jewish mind, there's a sense of shalom. It's a great greeting peace. It means wholeness, completeness, fullness, thriving, prosperity. And work was a part of that original blessedness. Work was part of that, that, that God's intent. When life is lived as God would have it, there is still work. To do. I'm a great fan of Flannery O'Connor, and in her novel, The Violent Bear It Away, uh, in the early descriptions in that novel, there is this young man named Francis Marion Tarwater, and he was raised by his uncle in a little patch of woods. Uh, he was raised to become a wild-eyed prophet. He was basically stolen away and, and, and educated by this man. And there's a description about the education that his uncle was giving him. And this is, this is how O'Connor narrated it. It said, his uncle had taught him figures, reading, writing, and history. You know, the basic stuff, right? History beginning with Adam expelled from the garden and going on down through the presidents to Herbert Hoover and on, on into speculation toward the second coming and the day of judgment. Now, friends, that's a comprehensive education when you get Herbert Hoover in there. But, but did you see, O'Connor didn't make mistakes. Where, where, did, where did history begin? With Adam expelled from the garden. The story of history that this boy was being taught was the story of life in its, in its compromised state, a, a life with brokenness. But the story of work begins before that. And in order to really get the full picture, the full dignity, you've got to go all the way back to the original blessing and the voice of God saying, this is good. This is good. So if you're writing them down, the first thing, work is part of the original shalom. The original wholeness of God. Second thing, work has been marred by sin. Chapter 3, we have after the, after the rebellion of that first family before God. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow. Thorns and thistles it shall grow. 
Meaning life and work is, is in, incredibly more difficult now that we've walked our own way and said we'd be our own bosses. So this great call to work has been touched. It's been marked by our sinfulness and our brokenness. There's some thorns and thistles to deal with. So friends, we as followers of Jesus, we have to hold these truths in our hands simultaneously. We have to recognize that work is good and it's from God. We also have to recognize that there's a few thistles and thorns to deal with. That work has been touched by our broken humanity and by the broken humanity of everyone else we share life with. So this makes work a powerful, potent reality because it's full of possibilities and goodness. It's full of the fingerprints and the touch of God. It's full of, of hopes and, and dreams and longings. It's full of things that are absolutely necessary for us to live vibrant and vital lives. And it's also... It's also a land inhabited by dragons. It's also a place where we have to tread humbly and with great care because we can be choked by those thorns and thistles and the cares of life as Jesus talked about them. Work is a powerful reality. So before we think about it as just something that we do because it has to get done, we need to recognize the spiritual potency of work and its place in our life. With that sort of as the foundation, let me lead us to our third biblical observation. Work is a divine activity. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 17, the Father is always working, and I too, I too work. God is a worker, and we've been created in his image, and we reflect his image as we engage the task and the duties and the work that he has trusted us to steward. This is an important starting point because it helps us to understand that this is part and parcel of what it means to be fully human and fully alive. The next observation, and I think this is powerful and beautiful. Work is a means of providing for our needs and an opportunity to bring blessing to other people. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes about work. He writes about his relationship to the church, and, and, and this, is, this is what he says. For he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and with hardship. We kept working night and day, so that we may not be a burden on any of you. Nor because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that we might follow our example. For even when you were, we were with you, we used to give you this order. 
If anyone will not work, let him not eat. For an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, to eat his own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. It's a personal note from the Apostle Paul. He says, look, we set an example for you. We, we worked. And I love the way Austin talked about this last Sunday, how in the midst of his tent making, Paul had opportunities to, to just live life with people. And in living life with people, had an opportunity to rub off and minister and, and be the fragrance of Christ. He said, we worked hard. And, and we worked hard to set an example He said, we could have done this another way. We could have funded this mission in another way. But in this this situation, in this circumstance, what we wanted to give you was a living sermon of the dignity and the value of working, of doing something productive and beautiful for the sake of the community and for the sake of your own souls. Idleness is corrosive to our soul. That's why we need a good plan. And part of that plan means to be part of working in God's world. If you're writing them down, here's the fifth one. Work can be, can be an act of devotion and witness. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Whatever you do. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward and inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve. Paul wrote these words to a class of people that did not have the most aspired-to position. He was writing to brothers, sisters that were slaves. By writing this, he was not endorsing the institution of slavery one bit. Don't go there. In writing to these men and women, he was offering them a way to dignify the way they spent the majority of their time He was saying, I want you to consider what you do in this world and the way you're going about it. He said, and what I want you to do is I want you to offer up, offer up your work to God. That work of fixing those clothes and cooking those meals, that work of tutoring those children, that work of pulling those weeds and preparing that garden, that work of rising early to go to the market and buy the provisions for the day, that work of of hauling water. He said to them, I want you to offer up that water hauling to God. He said, you know what? He said, God, God sees you, and God knows you. And there's not a drop of water that's hauled if it's hauled in the name of God. 
that is forgotten by our kind and beautiful Father. He said, remember, you serve the Lord. Your identity, your identity is not slave. Your identity is servant and child of God. And it is our God who rewards I believe with a sentence like that and many others, the way of Jesus, the apostolic witness of the resurrection and the coming of Christ, changed the way countless generations of Christ followers viewed what they went about doing in the earth. And they recognize that the work of their hands and the work of their heart and their passions could be an act of worship. And as an act of worship could turn into a, could turn into a voice of witness. Through that type of living, the gospel, the gospel has traveled around the world through butchers and bakers and candlestick makers Apostles and slaves. As people offered up their lives to God. As God rewarded those offerings. As life was lived. One such person, not a slave in Colossians, but a hairdresser in Mississippi, offered this word of testimony. Her name is Katie Anderson. She was the lady that cut our children's hair for the first time when they were little kids. Now, that's quite a deal to get your first haircut. You may not remember your first haircut, but your aged parents probably do. It was quite a moment. Maybe your mama did it herself, or maybe your dad. My mom cut my hair a time or two. Once my dad cut my hair, it looked like I had a vitamin deficiency. It, it, did, it didn't, didn't work out so well. Uh, and so Meredith and I, we opted for professionals when it was time for our children to have their first haircut. And, and Katie Anderson was the, was the lady who cut their hair for the first time. This past week, uh, Katie Anderson uh, reflected on her 15 years as a beautician, wrote this on, on Facebook. She says, as of last month, I have been a hairstylist 15 years. I've had a lot of clients. Some come and go. And some have stayed with me since the beginning of my career. I grow so attached to them, and I love hearing and participating in their lives. I've done countless first haircuts with mamas and daddies, nervously watching close by with their cameras ready. I've done tons of updos. Now, I had to ask Meredith what an updo was. And makeup. For those special nights for beautiful young ladies. I've been behind the scenes at so many weddings and beam with pride as I placed a veil. I've also seen the bad. Affairs, divorces, family members who have died. I've had to make a trip to the funeral home to wake one of my beloved patrons beautiful one last time. Today my heart broke when one sweet lady cried as she told me her mom died yesterday. But she needed to see me because I could make her feel better. She wrote with a question mark and an exclamation point. 
baffled, baffled by that. And at the end of the day, a last-minute request by a mother who is also a hairdresser to please cut all her daughter's hair off because she can't do it herself. She has cancer. It's bad, y'all, so please lift her up to our limitless God. I, of course, obliged, but I'm not going to lie. It broke me. I kept it together until she left, then cried, praying, praying that I would see her again. This job, it has its exhilarating moments, but it can be rough too. I'm thankful that God placed me here and that his plan for my life is so much more than I thought it was headed for. It's been a long, busy couple of weeks, and I'm tired, but I love this job. And I love my clients so much. Thank you to every one of you who have kept me going in sickness and in health for 15 years. I'm not sure she could have said it better. Beauticians from Mississippi, poets. Here's a lady, stands on her feet all day long. And cuts people's hair to the glory of God. And in the midst, she experiences his grace and his smile. No, she said, I love my job. She didn't say, I'm fulfilled by my career or my vocation. She said, I love my job because I love my clients. Maybe the bottom line word is love. You said, Matt, you really didn't say anything about vocation or fulfillment or career or purpose. You just talked about jobs and work. Today, friends, that was very, very, very intentional. I used to talk an awful lot about vocation and fulfillment and uniqueness I used to say things like I heard other people say uh, that, that, that the place where you really need to concentrate, you need to pray, you need to focus, is you need to, you need to ask yourself, what am I good at? What do I love to do? What does the world need me to do? What will they pay me to do? And you take those four things and you put them together. Oh, I, I'd quote Frederick Buechner. I'd talk about vocation being the, the place where the world's deep need and your deep gladness collide. That's a good line. I talk about those guys in Exodus 36. You know, those two guys that said the Spirit of the Lord was on them. And they were anointed to do all the work to build the tabernacle. Uh, and, and, and said they called together all those that were gifted and, and had a heart that was stirred for the work. And I would talk about your passion and your skills and all of that coming together. And, and, I, and I would say, this is, if you don't get all of these quadrants mixed up together, you're going to miss it when it comes to work. And you're going to, that's where you need to do all your maintenance. I preached one of those sermons one Sunday, and I went home that afternoon, and I got an email from Larry Lyon. 
There's the dean of the graduate school. He said, Matt, that was an interesting sermon, and it was a very thought-provoking sermon. He said, but let me, let me, I need you to help me think about something. He says, we've got students that are starting graduate programs. They're, they're, they're not even careers. When they get through, there will be careers out there and available for them that aren't presently there now. He said, they can't lay awake at night dreaming about, you know, what they want to be when they grow up, even in two years. Because that's gone. And so that started make me think about that. Another thing made me think about how I approach vocation. I traveled to the Mosquito Coast in Nicaragua. Went down that long river. Met thousands of people. You know what people do for work along the Mosquito Coast? They grow rice and beans and fish. Everybody. Rice, beans, fish. Rice, beans, fish. Every village has one nurse and one leader. And everybody else, rice, beans, fish. I've decided it's not gospel if it's not gospel everywhere. And you can't go down to the Mosquito Coast and say, what do you lay awake at night dreaming about? They lay awake at night dreaming about better rice, better beans, and better fish. So, okay. Another thing that made me sort of change the way I think about this thing and talk about it is just my pastoral love and concern for all the disappointment that comes with work. Because there's thorns and thistles in this world, there are a lot of people, a lot of people, good people, that, that work disappointment is a major part of life. And say you're good at this and you're passionate about this, but nobody's going to pay you to do it. What does that mean for you? What does it mean? And so I think we go back to Scripture and we just look at what the Bible teaches us about work and how to offer that to God like clipping hair. We become a task where we can meet God in the midst of that task. Where we can meet him in the, in the water carrying and the doing what we do. I recently read an article by Matthew Bill. It was titled, when, when Work Disappoints. And in that article, he talked about th this idea of dealing with vocation and work and how they can be very separate realities. But how God can be met in the work and how there can be joy and fulfillment in the work, in the task that are before us if we can get our hearts and our attitudes lined up with God's hope for us. In this article, he talked about an old monk, an old monk by the name of Brother Lawrence. Some of you have read Practicing the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence went to a monastery. He wanted to be a famous monk. When people go to monasteries to be famous monks, they want to be known for praying. Let me be known for whatever monks are famous for, you know. But what his job was, was he got the job of washing the dishes. I mean, he went to a monastery and he wound up in a waffle house. It's like, what am I going to do with this? And so he was very frustrated by this whole situation. Until he met God in the sudsy water. Here, here's a little perspective on it. He said, Brother Lawrence gave himself no uneasiness about it. Rather, he said to God, it was his business. His business he was about. So likewise, in his business in the kitchen, to which he had naturally uh, to greet a great aversion, having accustomed himself to do everything, therefore the love of God, and with prayer upon all occasions, for his grace to do his work well, he had found everything easy during the 15 years that he had been employed there. Here's a commentary on it. Brother Lawrence advocated uh, doing our common business as far as we were capable, purely for the love of God. 
rather than depending upon a convergence of passion, mission, vocation, and profession for this sense of purpose, he rooted the motivation for his work in love, claiming that despite the apparent lack in one of these uh, more such categories, he was pleased when he could take up a straw from the ground for the love of God. His experience of pleasure confirms the Westminster Shorter Catechism's proclamation that humanity's ultimate purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Friends, in the, in the great future that is to come, our passions and our talents, what we really want to do, it all comes together purposefully and completely and purely. We're not there yet. And we're living in the world that is. And in the world that is, we deal with disappointments. We deal with not living out our best and total thing. I mean, we, we, I wanted to play first base for the Yankees. So we live sometimes beyond what we think would give us the greatest fulfillment. Some of you. Some of you hit that mark. Some of you would lay awake at night as children and you would dream, if I just got there, I would be whole. And lo and behold, you got there. And then you found yourself like a disappointed kid on Christmas morning thinking, man, that wasn't all it was lived to be. You started feeling like the dog that coughed the truck. <laughs> Saying, what then? And what now? Look, you may have reached the pinnacle. You, have, you may be there with a flag planted. If the work's not offered to God with great love and with great love for people, it will always fail you. And you may be sitting here today saying, hey, I'm not where I thought I'd be. If you can offer that to God with great love and offer great love to people, every bucket of water you haul can be a life-fulfilling act of both worship and witness. Whether they pay you for it or not. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have made us your children workers. Lord, we long to live in such a way that we can find you in the midst of our daily chores and activities. God, we thank you that the scriptures teach us that we can indeed find you there when we do all things for you. God, take our lives, take our, take our, our deeds, take our, take our offerings at work, at home, and receive them. Lord, receive them like the loaves and fishes that boy offered Jesus so many years ago and multiply them. Lord, that our haircuts will become a, 
a holy place. That our oral changes will become a holy place. That our legal work, that our parenting, will become a holy meeting place. Between us and you, and a world that needs you. God, we pray that you would stir in us a new gratitude and a new passion for the work you've given our hands to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand and sing. We call this the hymn of commitment. If you have made commitments in the privacy of your heart, you would make them public. We invite you to come as we sing. If you simply need us to pray with you, uh, we'll be happy to do that uh, for the glory of God and for your good. David, please lead us. <laughs>